Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Susan Greylock Usum, a host of the New Books Psychology Channel, and today we'll be speaking with Dr. Martin Shaw about his new book, Smoke Hole, Looking to the Wild in the Time of the Spyglass. Dr. Martin Shaw is a writer and one of the most widely regarded teachers of the mythic imagination today. He's the author of the award-winning A Branch from the Lightning Tree, Snowy Tower, and Scatterlings Getting Claimed in the Age of Amnesia, and many other books. He also directs the West Country School of Myth in the UK, and he devised and led the oral tradition course at Stanford University. And his work has been published in Orion Magazine, Poetry International, Kenyon Review, Poetry Magazine, and Mississippi Review. Welcome to the new books, Martin. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. Well, um, can you begin by saying a little more about yourself and your work, especially for people who might not be familiar with it? For sure. Yes. In the last couple of years, I've probably become more well-known as a writer than anything else. But actually, for the last 25 years, I've been involved in something called Wilderness Rites of Passage. I have also been what you call an oral storyteller. Uh, Long before I was writing stories down, I let them live in my jaw and my imagination. And I was lucky enough to find immediate and endless work. Uh, I tried different things in my life, but in my 30s, uh, or actually in my 20s, I suddenly hit really what I think I was probably meant to do. Uh, So a lot of the last few decades have been exploring the landscape of a mythology and the mythology of a landscape. I've been very curious about stories where you almost feel that there are intelligences at play in them that are more than human. That there could be very ancient stories where you almost feel the earth itself speaking through them to us as modern people. And in times as troubled as this, and as as magnificent as this, but in times as troubled as this, I wonder, actually, rather than the continual rapacious desire to find new stories that actually some of the old ones have the earth itself trying to send a kind of morse code or echolocation to us now that there will be hopefully quite a few of our listeners nodding along to that but interestingly when i started my work the world of wilderness rites of passage was in one place mythology was in another and although many great wilderness guides loved mythology and would use it as a sort of uh, garnish over the practice what i wanted to do initially in my first book lightning tree was really integrate this place where a myth can be a kind of spoken ritual and a ritual can be a kind of uh, embodied myth, this, these hinge Hermian positions that I'm interested in. I had an audience of no one, 
when I began, absolutely no one. Uh, I was a young father. I had four different jobs. Uh, never in a, I would have just about fainted if someone had told me actually uh, the kind of luck that I would be able to attract through simple hard work. And it's just built and built and built. I was the artistic director of a festival in Maine, the Great Mother Conference, for a decade. I've just stepped out from that to do other things. Now, that's one of the really old mythopoetic conferences that comes from people like Robert Bly. Joseph Campbell used to teach there, Joy Timpanelli, James Hillman, Martin Cactel, Tom Robbins. It goes on and on and on. And I think that was one of the places I got thoroughly vetted and thoroughly soaked in some of the kind of work that I do now. Um, but I think one of the things we might be interesting to talk about later is where we find ourselves, quite almost hopefully post-lockdown, because we've all had this kind of rather strange sort of initiatory experience. Definitely initiatory in tone, it just doesn't have the usual parameters that an initiation has when you can see a beginning, a middle, and an end. You can't really see a beginning and a middle and an end. But I find myself looking at the circumstances of my life through a mythic lens because it is all, it's pretty much all I've done for a long time. And I think something I say in Smokehole is we make things holy by the kind of attention we give. And these areas that I'm describing and parenting being father are the areas that I've been keeping my gaze on for these many it's interesting that you bring up the connection with being a guide and being a mythologist, because I think for anyone who's been in that experience of a wilderness experience with a guide, that is kind of the language. The, that is the language that you get. That is what you learn to get into. And I was wondering when I was reading this, um, how have you, I think one of the things we've lost in our culture is the ability to actually understand stories and think metaphorically and engage with stories that way. And, from your position as a guide and as a mythologist, how have you seen that in our culture? The lack of it or the evolution of it? or Can people cultivate it easily? Like in a guide experience, you see it awaken? Brilliant question. Um, I think the lack of metaphor, especially uh, especially for, mod for what we would loosely call modern people, when a situation has... When a situation lacks a guiding image or a metaphor, it tends to accumulate anxiety around it. There can be a feeling that we've fallen out of our own story. It becomes undecipherable. So actually, a, a society, I couldn't really call it a culture, but it's a society that has a deficit of metaphorical understanding is lacking the essential poetic component to the travails of our lives, which will inevitably show up. And mythology, in my experience of it, takes an encounter we may be having, it could be a divorce we're going through, it could be some complex issue, and rather than reducing it, making it smaller to understand it, it amplifies it. It makes it even bigger, so something really essential gets to announce itself. By it being writ large, we see it more clearly. 
And so actually, when I was training in rites of passage, it wasn't really mythological language that was being used. It mm. was more, thera- more, more contemporary and therapeutic. Now, people may expect me to immediately say, and of course that's nonsense and what we need is myth. It's not that uh, black and white. The reality is at different moments in our lives, we need different things. But I noticed that whilst a story like, say, I'm just plucking one out of the air, Psyche and Eros could be mentioned briefly within the context of a rite of passage, my interest was what if that story became the great and only handrail from one end to another? What if we just went deeper with it? And so I actually, as well as being an oral storyteller, a mythologist is a word that you earn like becoming a scientist or a physicist. So I had to go to college, do my doctorate um, for six years. I had to, my, my tutors were very wise because they said, we're the gatekeepers of this particular qualification. And so we're going to throw things at you that you probably won't like. And until you can argue your case in the face and profound understanding of modern French philosophy, you don't get your PhD. So that was really good. I advise for anybody sometimes to get away from your support network, to get away from, you know, it's lovely if you have a few friends who think you're great. But there's also that something happens. There's something that happens when you are put in a less convivial atmosphere. And as a storyteller, I had been in every conceivable situation. I'd been around campfires, but I'd also been in prisons. I'd worked with people coming back from any number of uh, wartime uh, traumas. Uh, and I'd been in you know, great diversity of environment. And it was healthy that I was around people who were unconvinced by me. Uh, you know, I didn't, it was an extraordinary thing for me a few years ago when I started to work in Marin County and I found that everybody really liked what I was doing. But that hadn't happened before. I'd had 10 years of, of you know, uh, raised eyebrows. So that was a lovely arrival in Marin and actually many places in America and uh, Canada and other places. But I, I, I had to learn a lot before I got to that point, it was good for me to travel in uh, less approving company. You make the um, you you talk you mentioned about the idea of a story return to that same story deeper and deeper, and I think you talk about that through this book a little too about how you can move through a story. Like you could be the father, and when you hear the handless maiden at one point, but then later you are the handless maiden. But that you know that. This is an idea I've heard you say before, I think is really important way to understand a story is that you can read it, this one little story so many times. Like the first time I read your book, I, I you told the stories, I just enjoyed them like a child hearing a story. And then I heard them like a middle-aged woman and I thought, my God, this story is about me. And then I read it about our culture and I thought, my God, this is about us, modernity now. And it's just, and also thinking about, you know, oh, I was, I remember being the father letting my daughter's hands get chopped off. Now I remember, you know, being in the woods. So it's, can you say more about the idea of like how one story could give you so much and it seems so simple? That's, that's the great thing. Uh, 
stories like The Handless Maiden are the gift that keeps on giving because it's almost like peeling the layers of an onion, <laughs> which will also make you cry. But pe peeling off the layers where Hillman used to say, you can't enter a story without what he called felt experience. Now, Hillman was not necessarily a terribly sentimental man, but he understood that you needed a heartbeat, you needed an acupuncture point, you needed a, a seal hole into the the devastation of your own heart, otherwise nothing much was going to happen. And so that's usually where people begin, is they enter it like a child enters it, and then gradually their life experience catches up with them, and they realize that the story, and you've probably heard me talk about this before, has gone from skin memory into flesh memory into bone memory. And bone memory is this strange place where very, very old stories can reduce you to uh, reduce you to a cuddle, even though imagistically they don't have anything to do with your life. But a great storyteller takes you right down. It's the, the poet Ted Hughes. He had a capacity in his poetry to take his elevator right down into the deep platonic of his nature and come up again without getting the bend. And one of the problems is getting in that elevator when you don't have that kind of psychic roughage yet in you. It's why I caution actually against, unless you're in incredibly particular situations, don't wander into a party in West Hollywood and start gobbling ayahuasca. It's foolish. It's really foolish. Because it is as if you have thrown a hand grenade into your own psyche at that moment. And the damage that can be released, as well as the kind of the speed of the illumination, um, can can be devastating. But the reason I like these stories is that over time, as you're describing, I go from that felt experience Hillman describes into another day in another mood. I see it through a cultural lens. I can even see it through a political lens. And then finally, I can see it in the widest, most angelic, daemonic positions that you could imagine from the furthest out. But I move between all of them, almost like uh, the weave of a carpet or something like that. And as the problem at the moment, of course, is that if you view something like a fairy tale only, through the lens of gender exploration, only through the lens of men and women, you will quickly come to parts in this story that you don't like. And as you will have read in Smokehole and in many other books of mine, and which I'm always saying to my students, is that's quite a natural reaction to have. But as I'm sure you're fully aware, these stories are oddly more progressive than that. They're more progressive than just men over here, women over here. Actually, what about Susan's cormorant nature, or her heron nature? There are, there are other things at play other than these rather sort of stultified archetypal patterns. Even I don't, I know, You'll notice I don't really use those kind of words in my books because I, I want to stick to the pungency of the images. Yeah, you do avoid using the the traditional, which is 
helps it become something we can enter into, I think, and move around more fluidly. Well, um, let's dive into a little, before we dive into the three stories, a little more context. I think you, you start, the introduction, you start with the idea of the prayer mat. And I'd love to hear a little more about the, why you chose the prayer mat as this portal into the book and um, yeah, that the, the prayer mat itself. It's a really interesting entry point. This is an, it was an interesting thing, as you're saying that. I'm going back in my mind thinking, where did that image come from? When did I first see it? And I think last September, I was finally in the woods again. There was a brief reprieve of lockdown in England. And I, had, I was working with a group of folks who were going out to fast in the woods with my team. And I mean, you know, if you want social distancing, a wilderness right of passage is perfect. Um, so we're all sitting there and we're talking about our, their, their anxieties as they prepare to go out. And I was watching the smoke coming up from the fire. And I realized that for the four days they would be fasting, in some strange way, they were going to become smoke. They would be neither entirely male or female. They would be something else altogether. And they were going in to this other world where we'd remain holding on the rope till they got back. And I think it must have been around that point that I started to think of the prayer mat because, and this is just being very honest about my own life, I will be 50 in October, end of October, Scorpio person. And I have seen, I've now, like, like all of us, I'm everybody listening to this little bit, whistling to their teeth going, oh yes, I, I understand. By now I've, seen i've seen endless iterations of shamanism sufism depth psychology archetypal psychology esoteric christianity esoteric islam i've i've just seen all these meals pass by like a yo sushi you know these little meals that pass you and you think oh, i'll have a bit of this and about a bit and the other and one of the things that brought the prayer mat to mind was I just thought, could we not attend to the circumstances of our own life a little bit? Could we actually trade a little growth for depth? Could we limit our view? Because, of course, one of the things about COVID has meant that we've all come into relationship with the goddess of limits. So I decided to work with what the goddess of limits was telling me. And what she was telling me is, actually, you know what? It isn't another trip to Amazonia that you necessarily need. It isn't a spiritual teacher that you find in Morocco that you actually need. What you need to start doing is taking the conditions of your life as they are in all their seeming mundanity far more seriously. And so the image of the prayer mat came to me. Partially I was attracted to it because I'm attracted to a little bit of humility, you know, I'm a bit late coming to the party in terms of humility, but I'm, I'm doing my best. And this idea that the conditions of the family, and this is not, an, of course, it's not an original idea. This is, a, this is in all sorts of cultures, especially Greek. The conditions of your life are daimonic in origin. Before you were born, there was some strange mandate that was forged in some milky amnesiac of an arrangement that you promptly forgot when you were born. But the idea is 
you're here to do something with your life. As I say in Smoke Hole, the, the danger of our times is this idea continually that you can do anything you want or be anything you want. I, 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 I get that. But myth says something different. It says you're to be something quite specific. You are a very particular weather pattern, a very particular animal, a very particular human. So the, the match comes from what's underneath. Now, the beginning of the book, and the, actually the, the subtitle of the book is Looking to the Wild in the Time of the Spyglass. Because I found a story from the Caucasus where the, essentially the story is this, that a, a king has given his daughter a very powerful gift, it's a spyglass, and if she looks through it, she can see absolutely anything in the world in a fraction of a second. It seems that there's nothing that she can't find. And the only condition of marrying that woman is that you have to find a way becoming invisible to the spyglass. Many try, many are executed. But it turns out that throughout the story, the one place where she, where you cannot be detected is right underneath her feet. During lockdown, I became slightly overwhelmed with the kind of magic of social media. And one of the questions in the book is, when does a tool become a god? And so I was drawing attention to, as I said, the ground underneath our feet and also the idea of the smoke hole, which we can come to as well. So you've got what I call in the book the timeless and the time-bound. The timeless element, William Blake always talks about pinpricks of eternity. If you're suffering from depression and you go and see William Blake, which I thoroughly advise, you should walk, be able to walk in and out of any century you want. Go see William Blake. Tell him you're depressed. And he'll say, my darling girl, it's because you lack pinpricks of eternity in your life. When we don't have pinpricks of the eternal in our life, we fall into a slump. But on the other hand, if that's all we have, we have what the Lakota Sioux call too much great spirit. And we end up one of these sort of poor uh, people wandering about barely on the ground at all. So the book really is petitioning to live in the tension of the timeless and the time-bound. That seems to be what grows a really interesting human being. And that's a beautiful frame for the book. It opens with the, with the smoke hole and the spyglass comes around at the end. And that point you made about the grounding, well, maybe we should go into that story, actually, the spyglass story, because I think there was something so poignant about um, the, the hunter in that story, do you want to say more about the, you know, the, the, also the, the naivete and the challenge to take the four, not the three. I mean, there was something about the, that approach that was really poignant. Mm. The, the story begins with a young hunter who goes out looking for food because uh, his mum's hungry. And he comes to an eagle and the eagle says, well, you could eat me. But uh, why don't you just take a take a feather? And if you ever need if you ever need me, I'll help you out. And we don't know if an eagle's ever spoken to the kid before, but he recognizes instinctively this is a magical moment, and it would be far better to have the 
to have an eagle as an ally than to bring it home for something to eat. He continues on his way and he comes to a goat. Same situation. Well, you could just gobble me up, but if you take a bit of my hair, wouldn't it be wonderful to call on me? I'll help. Then he goes fishing, same thing happens, and a fish says, you know, why don't you just take one of my scales if you ever need me, give me a call. And then finally, in of course comes the trickster, and of course comes the fox, and the fox says the same thing. Well, the lad has now not eaten an eagle, not eaten a goat, not eaten a fish, not eaten a fox. He's very hungry, so he trots on for a bit further, till he comes to a large settlement a town, goes into a hut, asks an old woman for something to eat, and she says, well, you know, uh, I, I, you know I, I don't really have a lot. So he prepares her a meal, and they get talking. And she says, well, there's this situation where the elder, you know, the, the emperor of the town, the king of the town, has given his daughter this spyglass in the way that I just described. And unfortunately, my own sons have been executed by failing to stay out of the way of the spyglass. And so the lad, of course, immediately thinks, well, this sounds like my kind of adventure. So he goes and says, I'll do this. However, as you pointed out, I want four days, not three, because normally, it, it, as always in stories, things happen in triads. And of course, he goes out and he talks to the eagle, spends the first day in the eagle's nest, and it is hard for her to find him. But of course, in the end, that little spyglass tracks him down. Second day, of course, he's nestled under the goat somewhere. It is hard for her to find him, but she finds him. Third day, he is in the belly of a fish. Now that, he almost pulls it off. Till I think her mother gets involved and says, no, 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 look in the great oceanic depths. He's probably in there. And then finally, the fox says, oh yeah, thanks for calling me. You take it easy. I'm going to build a tunnel. I'll let you know when I'm ready. And the tunnel takes the lad directly underneath the feet of the girl with the spyglass. And of course, that is the one place that she, he, he or you or me cannot be found by the spyglass, the stuff underneath it, underneath our rug. Uh, and so, of course, the enchantment is broken because the enchantment from the beginning is as, it is as if it longs to be defeated. The whole thing is sort of set up to be defeated. And in the way that these stories go, love wraps its swan feather cloak around two of them, and the land flourishes in their uh, stewardship of it, the end. <laughs> Something like that. I haven't told it since I wrote it down, actually, because I had no one to tell it to. Uh, so that's as best as I recall. And there's... Um, there's... There's something really beautiful in the story. And then uh, she smashes a spyglass in the end. And um, it's just a really poignant thing in this time of visibility, as you, you know, you're talking about um, this period of modernity and what, what it's like to the social media and, and feeling networked, but actually lacking all community. And could you say a little more about this idea of network versus community and this sense of community that the hungry hunter develops through the story with the eagle and the goat and the fish and 
this kind of um, being in community, actually. Well, of course, what fairy tales give us is, is shorthand. They give us shorthand. So developing fellowship with an eagle could take 10 years of your life. Developing fellowship with a goat or a salmon or a fox equal. So he could be middle-aged by the time this actually happens. By the time you have developed that kind of myriad of animistic relationships, especially as a hunter, a hunter is defined by the task and he's not hunting or he's not hunting for things he's going to kill. He's moved from trapping to tracking animal powers and animals recognize that and they change in their relationship to you as they go. Um, so that for me immediately speaks of a healthy relationship to a world that is not just centered around one human talking to another, rich though that can be. Um, I've been thinking recently that I live next to a river and the river is a long one, it goes for many miles and every few miles the zip code of the river changes. Over here we call it a postcode, zip code changes. And it occurs to me that 2,000 years ago, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, every bend of the river would have had a different goddess or deity or god attached to it. And if we knew the names of each zip code in that deeper sense, our relationship to everything else would change because our traveling would then be a matter of libation. It would be a matter, which again, you know, Aboriginal culture understands this left, back, right, center. So I'm interested in the reality now, of course, is that when I was growing up, me and my friends fantasized about going to New York City, drinking in the taverns that Kerouac would have drunk in, sitting at the bar stool where Dylan Thomas drank 18 whiskeys in a row, you know, riding, ri riding a white horse all the way across America. You know, that's the kind of thing that would set keep us up at night. But I noticed for a lot of teenagers, the frontier they're most interested in now is in their pocket. It's, there's not really talk about traveling to Asia. There's not really talk about great metaphorical, metaphysical works. Now, of course, there are exceptions to what I'm saying. I'm making a general move, I'm afraid. And suddenly we have, as you know, this strange situation where a hundred years ago, most of us would have probably been known most of the time by about 30 people, about 30. Now we are expected to know 3,000 or 30,000 or 30 million. And there's this preposterous notion that the more likes you get, the better you're going to feel and the more wonderful your life is going to become. But if you know anybody that's had any encounter with being in the, what's the word, the microwave of that experience, it's not like that. One of my friends is the drummer John Densmore, who was in The Doors. And so he was up close in person watching a man get fried alive by fame 
you know, Jim Morrison is just a young man, just a really, you know, one of those extraordinary talents that died at about 27. So that notion that a network is not a community is very real for me. I have huge networks of people that I interact with all over the world, but my community is probably 20 people scattered around where I live, very different political positions, very different ways of looking at the world. But they are people that when I get a flat tire in a storm at two o'clock in the morning, I can ring up and they're going to turn up and we're going to figure it out together. But I've seen them as fundamentally different positions. You know, community is one thing, network is another. I think the um, touching back on what you were saying about young people today and what you feel like you that you know the the shift in exploring and going out and what that looks like, I thought one of the most you know the gut punch maybe of the book when I read the line was you can, and you mentioned this earlier is you can't be anything you want to be and I think that is part of the story that you know the the fantasy of the virtual culture might be that you can be anything, but that that is probably, I think, one of the most you know powerful pieces in the stories that the way you tell them, especially how it comes out in the handless maiden. Perhaps we should touch talk about that story a little bit because I think the idea of growing your hands back and what and beauty and what real beauty is is really really like important story at this time. I mean, I think when I turned the page and saw the handless maiden, I thought, ah. I think we were ready for the story. I remember encountering it years ago, and I didn't. It wasn't satisfying the way it was presented. And I think, oh, it was just a perfect story. I hadn't thought of it in years. But can you say more about the handless maiden and how that, how how she and or how the, all the that whole story came at this time? To you again, um, it, isn't it funny? I mean, it's funny in a terrible sort of way. For a year, all we've heard is "Don't touch anything." Ah, of course. Don't touch anything. So, you know, wash, wash your hands afterwards. So I started to think in the way that I do, how do we as cultures begin to grow our hands back after this enforced traumatic event, really? And so I started to look at that. And suddenly I realized, oh, I've got a book. If I've got the story of the spyglass, if I've got the story of the Handless Maiden and uh, another story that's in the book as well, The Bewitched Princess, I think we've got something. And the book wrote itself in, deep breath, five days. Five days. And that's, that's odd. That's odd because I've looked at it. There's no, if I may say, there's no drop in quality. It doesn't, look, doesn't read rushed. But bearing in mind a book you mentioned earlier on Scatlings, that took five years, and I don't prefer scatlings. They're just different. So I think it was one of those books that it's a little bit, I think painters have this experience where someone says, oh, you did a painting in 20 minutes. That, does, does that uh, cheapen its value? But not if, not if you spent 20 years working up to the moment where you're receptive and fluid and you have enough technical chops to execute in that way. So I was kind of surprised to, and I wrote it by a fire in the woods, which I'm going to visit after I, we, we speak together. 
and I actually got in touch. I'd said to Chelsea, you know, I've got an idea, you know, on a Sunday. And by Friday, I was like, well, <laughs> I've written it. And so The Handless Maiden is pivotal for me because I think we all are curious about how we learn to reach out, touch the world again. There is an amazing English actor called Mark Rylance, and he's the great Shakespearean actor of our time. He, but he won a, an Oscar for a, a movie he was in with Tom Hanks called Bridge of Spies. Talking to Mark last week, and he was talking about what happens when an actor has an evening when everything goes absolutely right. Every line lands perfectly, the crowd laugh, they weep. And everyone around you says, that was great. Just do it like that tomorrow. And the phrase he used, which I think is a killingly funny, he said, uh, he said, the temptation, of course, the next night is to reheat the meal, you know, just to reheat it. I'll try it again. And so the way I'm interested in growing my hands back is not to reheat the meal of wherever I was before this happened. Otherwise, it makes the whole thing, um, it, 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 it diminishes the creative importance of it, of actually having a major gap. It was the first time I'd stopped two and a half decades uh, to really do this. So the handless maiden, the wandering in the forest, the returning. Another thing about the handless maiden story that is magnetic to me, and I'm afraid this is a bit of a plot spoiler, to your listeners, but they'll, they'll be all right, is that actually the process of the restoration of her hands, which does happen, doesn't happen in the traditional male, heroic, individuated form. It happens within a company of women together called the Wood Sisters, who've made a home out in the liminal forest. When she was younger, she was very frightened. But as she goes back into the forest as an older woman, she encounters women, that, and actually men as well, who've become deeply grounded in living in that kind of hinge place between the village and the forest. So that's another thing is, I don't, I don't talk about human community a great deal. I, my idea of a community involves many, uh, you know, it involves Caravaggio. And it involves um, you know, Nina Simone, it involves uh, you know, Hafez. It, it, a, third of every, a third of any functioning community should be invisible, should be invisible. And a lot of it should belong to our glorious, befuddled, ancestral dead and things like that. All sorts of thoughts about it. You keep a community should have a, a sense of exfoliation around it. It should stay curious. But to get back to the point of what I'm really saying, is that I love the idea that we can grow our hands back, not in our isolation, but with other folks around us finding their way to. The Wood Sisters is, is the most beautiful piece of that story. I don't remember ever hearing that piece, but I, it is the part that is just, I don't, magnetic and and just a beautiful place to sit in when you, I think of the story, the Wood Sisters. It's really just, not, and I think it is a really interesting. That's the thing that I thought when I said, like, wow, what happened to the heroic? This is a really interesting turn. I think 
it, it's, it's really part of the beauty of that story. I'm glad you highlight that piece because that was what really lingers about it. The Wood Sisters, and not just the Wood Sisters, the Wood Brothers, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're, I've been telling the story, you know, for years. And every few years, you'll notice uh, a group of, they'll, suddenly there'll be some Wood Sisters. They'll form a little group of Wood Sisters or, or Wood Brothers. And uh, what I rather love about the story is that the Wood Sisters say, well, maybe they don't say it in this story, but the way I tell it orally. They say, well, we're kind of attracted to being nuns, but not quite enough <laughs> to actually do that because we're kind of fond of men and squabbling and smoking cigars sometimes and, you know, weeping and we're in touch with our own irascible nature. And I love that that can be really beautifully spiritual to our men, our women as brain. That's what I think. Uh, and of course, you know, I wrote this book for my daughter. Uh, it was her, she's just turned 16. Uh, and, you know, this is a little love letter from her dad to her as she begins to, you know, develop everything you need to go out to the world. And just a few things of what I think really matter. Yeah, you, you dedicate the book to her. And I was wondering about younger people while I was reading the book, thinking about younger people I know and wanting to give the book to them. And then wondering, wonder how they would react to it, you know, relative to how I do. But of course, they would react in their own way. But did did your daughter have thoughts about it when she read it that were surprising to you? <laughs> she she read some of it. She's read some of it. Uh, yeah, she everything she says is surprising to me. Actually, um, I think she's attracted. She's attracted to these stories because of what we've been talking about, because of the the fluidity of perspective fluidity of perspective. I'm a sitting target for people tending to assume that I'm interested only in myths about gender exploration and men's work and things like that. And actually, anybody that knows me knows I think it's great when the women go off and do womenly magical witchy things. I think it's great when men go off and do that too. But my own directive is not really that conversation because I think it's been handled beautifully before and is still being handled beautifully i'm an artist interested in imagination that's it that's it and so i'm curious about a more porous possibly a more playful perspective on things also also with the caveat that i may change my mind at any moment got that freedom when you're an artist yeah it feels to me that there is a sense of etiquette in the stories you know, that was something, a word that kept arising when I was reading it, that there's a teaching of etiquette and how you approach situations. And I'm curious if you have thoughts on that idea of um, that how, how you approach things or how you connect with more than human or etiquette as, a, as an idea. Well, if, if, as I rashly put out at the beginning of our conversation, that some of these stories are actually a dialogue between us and the wider earth, then surely the wider earth would be telling us and giving us all sorts of clues and hints about how to behave. I want to spend the rest of my life as a praise maker. You know, I don't think of myself as a doctor of philosophy necessarily, or a mythologist really, or a story. I'm just a praise maker, and I'm using my 
prayers are disguised as stories. Their prayers disguised as stories. They really are. I met an old woman once. She said, your stories are a cloak. You throw over people, then you do your wicked work. And she meant it in a nice way. She said, you're up to shenanigans, which is her phrase. She said, you're up to shenanigans, but you throw the coat of story over people and they relax. And then you do the real business. So I try to. Um, I think we need them. I mean, aren't we? We're story gobbling people. You know, st- long before we had things that glowed in our hands and we only looked a foot and a half in front of us, the real gaze of a hunter, say, that we'd find in that story is always on the periphery of things. It's on the jingling edge of things. You know, I, I'm aware that I've spoken about all of these things before, but I'm going to keep talking about them till people pay attention. You know, I had a friend once and they someone said to him, you know, Pastor, why do you keep delivering the same sermon? And he said, well, because you never pay any bloody attention to it, so I'm going to keep teaching the sermon till something happens. Again, I, I didn't know him well, but I remember Hillman saying, go to California and just teach the same thing for four years. Don't deviate. And he said, all First of all time, everyone will go, wow, that's deep. And then the next year, there'll be 50 less people and there'll be less wows. And by the end, there'll be about seven and then the work can really begin. So that, again, that's a, isn't that a community position, not a network position? And it's a very um, difficult thing to hold on to when what's being continually iterated around you on the internet and other places is that big is success, small introversion, you're not living your best life, that ghastly expression, you're not living your best life. Maybe your best life can remain partially hidden from other people. It doesn't have to be in full display all the time. That's exhausting, you know. So many of us are experiencing the peculiar fog that comes from excessive Zoom sessions. You know, you stagger out of these things and you just have to lie in the long grasses because you know. Do you remember the old native idea that if you took a picture of someone, a little bit of their soul had gone? Well, I think that's like nothing in comparison to Zoom. It's gone. <laughs> we should probably give um, a moment to the hostile mountain spirit, maybe at least give it its due and say something about the bewitched princess story in this. We don't need to spoil the whole book, but I think it's worth, because you're kind of getting into the idea of the enchantments and breaking enchantments. And Yeah. The book is divided into three sections, really. The growing your hands back, which we all understand. But part two is called breaking enchantments, because I think so many of us in the last year have spent too much time in our own head And we are as ripe for self-hypnosis and self-enchantment as anything necessarily that's coming at us. So I was interested in a fairy tale I've loved for years, not very well known, called The Bewitched Princess, which is about, it it has a, a slight similarity to the Spyglass story. There is a princess who is secretly almost she's almost married to a mountain she's married to a spirit that lives in a mountain behind the castle he's often called the hostile mountain spirit and every night she sort of floats in a rather creepy manner up 
to his uh, his cave where he says, tomorrow, go down and ask three questions of any potential suitor. Or oh, one question, I can't recall at this second. And, of course, if, you can, if he can answer them, he can marry you. But if not, his head's chopped off, and there's nothing I don't love more than blood. This is, you know, uh, a very real energy alive in the world at the moment with... You know, some of the stuff that's going on at the Gaza Strip and things like that, just terribly complex, dark materials. But all of this insanity is coming out of the voice of this young woman. So it seems radiant and beautiful, but the directive behind it is absolutely deadly. So that particular story is about how you recognize that you have become enchanted and how you break that enchantment. And part of that involves, as you probably remember from the end, baths of milk and, you know, turning into ravens, turning into doves, all sorts of alchemical maneuvers of which I will say no more till you've read it. Or I noticed today it's come out on Audible, so you can listen to it. I read it a few weeks ago. So that's another thing that's quite That's wonderful. You reading them yourself. What a treat. Yeah, I think that the, that's a great story. It's an I didn't know that fairy tale. And I think Peter is in his naivete as a hero is a wonderful hero for our time for this moment. You mentioned at the beginning we should return to you know we are possibly transitioning out of something. What do you have your thoughts been of late about this next movement that we're going through culturally? I said at the beginning of. At the beginning of lockdown, could it be that this was an encounter not with isolation but with solitude? Now, that got pretty wearing, I admit, post the new year, certainly in Britain, and I'm sure everyone else, this last iteration has been particularly difficult. But personally, we're back to the image I said earlier on of not reheating the meal, staying alive to what you've learned, following the leads even when the thread is rather delicate. I'm thinking of two different poets at this moment. There's Antonio Machado. He says, there is no road. You make the road by walking it. And William Stafford, who always said something like, each of us goes through life holding on to this very delicate little thread. And if you tug it too hard, it'll break. But if you just pay attention to where it's leading you, it takes you to Jerusalem's wall. And I think some of us have detected in this deep interior that we've been in, maybe for the first time in a long time, we are holding on to Stafford's thread. And so I would caution all of us to be gentle with ourselves, to remain curious about our lives, to not attempt to get back to normal as quickly as possible but to just keep attending to the thread that we have in our hand. That's a beautiful thing to lead with, to end with, to begin with. One last question that you've given us so much of your time, but what are you working on right now? Anything you want to mention? or? Can I- well, uh, I've got various things that are cooking away. I had an interesting experience uh, a few years ago that I think many people may relate to the dna testing that's become very popular 
And it turned out that my people weren't my people and they didn't come from where I thought I'd come from. And so it was astonishing that I, the DNA was so strong, it was able to be very specific about areas in predominantly in the west of Ireland. Uh, so this is Galway, Mayo, uh, a little bit of Kerry, Sligo, that area that, that was like, I have, you know, I am infused with it. It's not just a, a little garnish, it's the real dip. And that's fascinating for me because I've been telling stories. I have been magnetically attracted to stories from Connaught my whole life. And now I know why, because they're the, the myth lines in the, the red daggers of my bloodstream. So I've written a story called The Fellow in the Rain, which is a love story to this place I didn't know I had. There's a word the Welsh have, a hiraeth, which is a longing for something almost indefinable, almost like Eden. The Greeks have a word called nostos, which you see in Odysseus's longing to get back to Ithaca. And so this book is my great hiraeth, it's my great nostos, to the land that I didn't know I had. But now I know I'm going to be making the most of it, I can assure you. And I have lots of developing friendships uh, over in the west of Ireland. So that's really exciting for me. The Fellow in the Rain, it's, it's not out yet. It's just in manuscript form. But interestingly, although the book is very Gaelic in exploration, clearly, I think the experience itself is something thousands of people will be able to relate to because it's happened to so many of us. And you have a podcast coming out, yes? Yeah, it just begun, the Smoke Hole Sessions. I have a wonderful relationship with my publisher, Chelsea Green. They're astonishing. And when we started to look at Smoke Hole, the book, we, coming from both their side and from mine, we suddenly said, you know, what about some conversations? And sure enough, uh, the smoke hole sessions went live a few days ago on any kind of platform you can imagine, Apple and the rest of them. We did the first three episodes in one hit. So you have uh, the great, great Irish comedian Tommy Tiernan, the wonderful writer Jay Griffiths, um, another wonderful writer, the Glaswegian warlock, uh, David Keenan, and from now on, every week we're dropping one after another after another. They're very philosophical. A lot of them has me just wandering around where I live in the rain, in the woods, allowing oral thought, just speaking on the tongue, really. And I really like it. It's part of this new thing for me of, okay, how do I stay interested and curious about my own work? And the podcasts are one expression of that. Smoke hole sessions. Thank yeah. you so much. This has been great to talk to you. I so appreciate the time. Absolute pleasure. Um, well, this is Susan Greylock Usum, and this is the New Books Network. And we have been speaking to Martin Shaw about his latest book, Smoke Hole, Looking to the Wild in the Time of the Spyglass. And you can find out more and learn more about his work at drmartinshaw.com, drmartinshaw.com. Thank you so much. Pleasure.